Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. So for the listeners out there, today we have a live version of Making Data Simple. For the listeners, I'm doing this on behalf of IBM Expert Lab Services. Uh, that's who I represent. We have what's called a Tech Fest this week. This is a live virtual enablement around uh, learning products, et cetera, around three divisions under cloud and cognitive. That's AI apps, automation, and data and AI. These sessions include uh, presentations, learning activities, demos, and hands-on. So this is going to serve as a good break for all those in education right now. So uh, hopefully this is going to be very different very relaxing and hopefully you're going to learn something as well. Uh, I was humbled uh, to be asked to do the live version of the podcast. When I started the podcast, honestly, it was just me being selfish saying I wanted the network and I wanted to learn as well. So it ties right into the learning theme. Somehow, some way, I still don't quite understand it. We have thousands of people that listen in each week, which I greatly appreciate. So, you know, we're doing something right. I'll attribute that to producers, Steve Templeton and, and Kate Maine that the heavy lifting. I was a podcast junkie myself. That's what made me jump into this. So I could have chosen anyone. I've had like 180, 190 guests, I think somewhere around there at this point. I chose Paul Zakopoulos. And I think this is his fourth time. And if you're in the US, there's a show called like Saturday Night Live. And the fifth time, if you're on, you get a jacket. So one more time, Paul, and you will get a jacket. Just that that's the incentive that you have today. Anyway, if you've heard us before, we may cover some old ground. The interesting thing is this could be risky because I don't have a whole lot planned. I just want to have a chat with Paul. Uh, and there's two things. One is technology, and the second thing is leadership. And I'll probably divide it up between the two, but it will probably do 80% leadership. We'll see where it goes. But if you don't know Paul, he is the vice president of IBM Technical Sales, Skills, Vitality, and Enablement. He is a, an award-winning speaker and author. You'll find this out as you hear him talk much better than me. Written a ton of books. I don't know where he finds the time. He should be a billionaire by now. He's got 20-some books. And a long-term Canadian IBMer. Was it 27 years, Paul? Is that where we're at now? Uh, I think it's uh, 28 years. 28, it just isn't a couple of weeks ago. So Nice. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, look, I, I brought you on for a couple of reasons. One is a perfect podcast is a mix of uh, strong technology and leadership, as I mentioned, but also, you know, you find sometimes it's a little harder to, to have a dialogue with certain people. You, it's painless. That's a, that's a huge compliment. And uh, you seem to always have like these um, interesting, uh, we get in the weeds, but some interesting discussions that I think people are going to enjoy today. So, Let's jump in. How are you, man? You've been all right? You've been good? The book actually count just went to 21. So I just had the 21st book, Cloud Without Compromise, come out. Uh, to correct you on if you are a billionaire, anyone who writes a book, it's not like I wrote, wrote 50 Shades of Big Data or something like that. So I do it actually to learn is what I learned. But that all said, uh, I'm doing well. I'm uh, testing negative and staying positive. So things are going good. Nice. He always has a good good line. I like this. I know. You know, you recently took on skills, vitality, and enablement. That's like, is that not your perfect job? Is that the perfect position for you? It's a dream job because what I want to create is a contagion, if you will. I want it to be contagious for people to be curious about learning. 
learning never ends. And that is the angle that separates zeros from heroes, pros from Joes, those that know and those that don't know. And I've lived this personally in my life because I actually, I don't know if a lot of people know this about me, but I actually came to IBM having never taken a computer course in my life. Somehow got a job in the lab. I think I started in ID, then I went to design and did service, started to learn how to program. Wasn't very good at it, but I can program at least or, or read code. And, and my whole journey for whatever mountain or pothole of accomplishment I've had professionally or personally has been because I wake up every day and I need to learn something new every day. I think that actually comes from my parents who are both educators. So when you think about that and I think about how we can move the business forward, but it's not just the business out, how I can move each and every individual career forward. And I hope those careers stay long-term long, long -term at IBM. But even if you know you, the average person changes careers so many times or changes employers, putting that skill in you is the number one thing to success, learning every day. And, and so in that way, it is the perfect job for me, not without its challenges, but boy, do I wake up excited to learn every day. What's been your journey at IBM, if you'd say so? And, and then tell us a little bit more about what skill vitality and enablement actually does and what you're working on. Yeah, so my journey at IBM, I come in as a, I think a step contractor for a couple of years, just writing documents. I'll never forget, I don't even know if this is legal anymore, but my hiring manager, still IBMer, Fred Gandolfi, it's like, I like you, you've had some, some good snazz about you. Uh, what do you know about computers? Nothing, well, I have a job in compiler, uh, you just write documentation. Why don't you go and write about C pointers? So I went out to write, to learn about C pointers. I gave him back this paper uh, what a C and a C plus pointer is what I wrote. Punchline will get you in a moment. He writes back on this page, sends it back to me, says, this is excellent. You really learn technology. Uh, one thing, C plus is a drink. C plus plus is code. So I had written C plus because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just learning it. He goes, PS, you have a job. And that's how it started. So I started in there and I would document stuff. And I, and I looked around and I, like a lot of folks were involved in things I didn't think they had expertise around. And so I was the least knowledgeable person in the world. So I just went to consume knowledge. And that is a huge tip for anyone building their career. Surround yourself with people smarter than you. You'll always get smarter. But eminence happens when you take enormous kind of hands-on into what you do. So I started learning the product compiler. Then I went into database to DB2. Then I went to OM. Then I led tech sales. I've been with customers all the time, and now here I am at Vitality. So I, I've had a, a unique opportunity to see from all kinds of angles, right? The consumer, the provider of information of our clients and stuff like that. With Skilled Vitality, what we're really doing is trying to work in conjunction with other groups at IBM, but creating a strategic mission that upskills our entire organization around products and technology and the storylines that support the outcomes we want our clients to get to. And that is everything from hands-on demos, right? But all the way back to the why, right? Almost how do we bring clients to our solutions as opposed to coming out with feature function benefit. All those are absolutely required for successful sales, but successful outcomes for our clients. So that's what we do is build that strategy. Do you feel like you're setting the strategy or do you feel like you're explaining the strategy with context and stories or both? Yeah, I think it's both, right? Like we set a strategy, like most strategies, you know, it takes time for it to churn. You get all kinds of groups. Some groups jump in right off the bat. Some groups are hesitant because 
you know, we're all busy. We're all used to doing things the way we do things, but then they start to see the different outcomes. So then they jump aboard. So I would say we set the strategy and, you know, along the way, Al, as you'll know, like we're learning too, right? It's like, well, I don't have all the answers. We kind of surrounded ourselves with some great people with some great ideas. And so I would say the strategy will always evolve, but we come out with a set strategy of, of what to do, where we want to see people. And that directly aligns to what is going to make the company successful in the marketplace and the skills we need, not just skills, but where we need those skills to make us successful. All right, let's jump in then. Um, IBM strategy, hybrid cloud operations and artificial intelligence. The right strategy, are you all in? All in a hybrid cloud, baby. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would be all in since the last two books I wrote is AI Ladder and Cloud Without Compromise. So I feel like I've bookended uh, the <laughs> IBM strategy, but I think within those areas, and then I would put security in there, though it's implicit. When I think about security in AI, I think about protection against adversarial attacks. I think about protection against bias. When I look at hybrid cloud, I think of security, but those are kind of the three orbits in my opinion that when I go and talk to a client or any of our sellers talk to a client, these are the very hot topics. And within there will flow everything that we do. And they're becoming more and more interconnected, right? If I think about an ML ops type life cycle, I think about what would I do in AI? Like AI is about three things, right? Automation, prediction, and optimization. Those three things. So then you think about those and driving AI, then you think about security, cyber is a big thing right now. And then I think about operations. So I bring about hybrid cloud and where do I run it and agility. So they all kind of come together and every client needs to be led to a place in those areas. What do you see that IBM offers in terms of differentiation that no one else can do within those areas? Yeah, well, I think there's each of them are massively differentiated. So if I think about on the hybrid cloud side, I think that the Red Hat acquisition was brilliant. I'll tell you why, because everybody right now, they think is cloud as a destination. And what I, as an author or as an IBMer, and what I want our sellers to do is to talk to clients about cloud as a capability, not a destination. If that destination happens to be public cloud on Azure or IBM, that's no problem. But I want you to think back to the days when you first started to get involved in the Java world, right? Java would come out, you'd build something in a JDK, you'd get a JVM, the virtual machine. And the notion was you build it once and run it anywhere. Well, how did Java turn out? Build once, test everywhere, right? Like it just didn't work. You'd get the wrong JVM on here. You have to fix this, fix that. And so if you think about what hybrid cloud really is about, it is, anywhere on premise off premise and on the edge al that's another area where you know as we move from the internet of things to the internet of everything edge computing even for ai is massive so i'll call it the intelligence of everything so when you think about our businesses why were we conditioning ourselves to say this is the one place that everything must go and i think that is it on hybrid cloud when you build over the openshift container platform the red hat openshift you do build it and you run it and you move it anywhere you want with that fluidity and agility. So I think that side is bang on. AI, I don't think I have to explain AI. Uh, the biggest thing I have to explain to customers about AI is not magic and where to start. I think those are great strategies to be on. And then cybersecurity. Can you even open a, a newsletter on your email these days and not see a cyber hack? Impossible. So those are the three things that are challenging our clients the most. Are we the only ones that can really do hybrid? 
I think in the definition, which is most beneficial to the customer, absolutely. So I look at, you know, other vendors, uh, Amazon, for example, working on their on-premise version of hybrid, but it has very rigid and restricted kind of requirements. And if you just look at where we're building and how we're building our applications and the things that we deliver to clients, we're going to meet our clients where they are. And if they're on a different cloud, we'll meet them on a different cloud. If they're on an edge device on a windmill generating, you know, uh, electricity from turbine, then we'll meet them there as well. And so I think we're the only ones that are really at the forefront of that, but actually doing it. It's one thing to talk about it. Like here, here's this particular vendor and you can use this vendor on premises. It's another thing to say, we'll go anywhere. I, well, I think that's important, at least from my point of view, uh, customers are looking to modernize. And I think, you know, most of the time when they think modernize, they think, oh man, this is a lift and shift. It's gonna kill me. What do I do? So in, in my point of view, like the hybrid lets you manage govern data across the hybrid enterprise, it private, public, on-premise, whatever. Secondly, we have this full set of capabilities and governance, and we, we've got this little thing called Red Hat now, uh, which also includes automation, visualization, et cetera. And then lastly, it's open. We're the first ones that I see really that open up to like third-party databases, et cetera. So what that all lends itself to is in summary, we're not saying, hey, this is a new way to move bits. It's like you can modernize now. It can be multi-cloud, hybrid, open integration, connect the old with the new. Let's get it done and let's, you can start small, you can start big. I think, you know, when I've talked with clients, I mean that, you know, the, the pressure and the, uh, the stress level goes down significantly and it's a great introduction. You know, when we bought Red Hat, I'll be honest with you, it was a difficult discussion with clients. Some of the clients that, you know, it said, yeah, well, let us think about it. Day after we buy Red Hat, they call me and say, hey, let's talk. I wanna talk again because they knew that they could modernize in short term, get it done uh, in steps versus just a whole lift and shift. You see it the well, same way? Yeah, Al, I think you hit a big point on there. And hey, look, if there's one thing that COVID did um, other than just disrupt business, it has accelerated the need for modernization, right? Uh, I wrote an article called Thrivers, Divers, and the New Arrivers. And those divers were not modernized. In other words, and these are big businesses out. Like so many people found out they weren't nearly as modernized as they thought they were. Like when I'm three hours and I won't say the vendor on a chat just to check my order, or I get online and I submit an order to one of the largest retailers in the world for what else? Some toilet paper online, right? And then I walk by an end cap where there's toilet paper and I'm not trying to hog it. So I just kind of don't buy it. And then two days later, it says your order could not be fulfilled. We're out of inventory. And you're like, you're the largest retailer in the world, a brick and mortar. Wow. So these are big names. So thrivers, divers, new arrivers. And as we came out of it, and we are seeing this in spending is folks say we have to modernize almost in a chaotic way. And you said at one point earlier, you, you said like, it doesn't have to be all at once and lift and shift. And I agree with that. I don't know if you ever watched five-year-old kids play soccer and they're like, oh, and they're all running around like a cluster. Clients, some clients are doing that, but I want to step clients back and say, how do we do this, right? What is the strategy? So for example, on the IBM Z, the mainframe, right? There are rock solid applications that keep a business alive. They want to modernize. But they don't have to take the whole thing out and reprogram the whole thing. Maybe you're modernizing the front end, right? And putting a mobile app in the front and keeping that agile. 
So it's, it's like uh, anything. It doesn't have to be all at once. And in fact, when you take this kind of, let's just get to first base as a baseball analogy, you actually learn along the way and your skills grow and then you move towards that modernization. So it's critical to have choice, I think is it. Have choice and not be pushed into giant leaps, but sustained movement forward will always outperform giant leaps. You know, one thing you mentioned earlier was IoT. And just a comment on that, like I think, in 2017 or something, Anderson Horowitz had a, a unique article. It was a catchy title. It said something like cloud is dead or something. But the thought was, is we're all going consolidated, but then we're going to have IoT, which is going to push things back out uh, to the to the edge. It feels like IoT still hasn't taken off yet. I mean, it's still not there. I don't know if you have any perspective there. You know, I think it's there in the infrastructure, Al. Like, if you think about Internet of Things, I tried to vacuum my house the other day, and I couldn't vacuum because the Wi-Fi was down. A little robotic vacuum that goes around the house. <laughs> couldn't access the map, right? So i like, Cal, we got to vacuum the house a different way. So she puts the vacuum in my you hand. You might have right? to actually get the, the normal vacuum out, dude. That's right. Do you That's even have right. one anymore? Uh, well, we do, but it's tucked away. I have a Wi-Fi toaster. <laughs> Don't ask me why. My fridge my uh, dishwasher. So I think the sensors are pervasive and this is kind of leads to what a data problem is. We are collecting data like no tomorrow. Uh, the world does not have a data collection problem. We have a data understanding problem. So as I say, we move from the internet of things as you, I think you said 2017 or something like that. I think today I would say we have the internet of everything. So everything and anything can be instrumented, bridges outside, your car is fully instrumented. As I said, my vacuum. The next phase where we have to get to is the intelligence of everything. And that is being able to drive our AI out to the edge. And that's one of the reasons IBM has greatly invested in a distributed cloud product uh, or a distributed cloud in a product we call IBM Cloud Satellite, because it will be about how do we manage and make use of those devices and better optimize them. So. I think we've got the internet of things there. We don't have the intelligence of everything yet. And that's the next frontier. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, funny story is we, you know what fantasy football is, right? So we, we play fantasy <laughs> football in my house. They have people over and they're all trying to connect to my internet so they can make their picks. And one guy's like, hey man, I'm connected to your fridge. Is there something I can do here? Because it just connected. <laughs> it's like, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's the world we live in today. And now my wife got like a, a button on the, uh, you know, so she can order things. You know, you just hit a button and Amazon, you know, things show up every day, by the way. Hey, look, I, uh, one thing that uh, you really, you did a lot of things well, but one thing that really caught my eye that helped me with customers, which what I call the, uh, the maturity curve. You did yeah. a maturity curve around data and AI, and I think you've updated. Let me, what I'm going to ask you is, what is the new maturity curve or what's the cloud and cognitive maturity curve as you see it and how you would sell it to clients? The reason I'm asking you that is, um, and, and I'll give you some time to think about it because I'll, I'll talk about the data and AI maturity curve that you did some time back. And you know, there are multiple people that contributed to it, but you really are articulated it well. What it was, guys, is imagine a, a chart where you have on the x-axis maturity, you know, you go you more maturity from left to right, and then the y-axis was value where you go up and you got like four quadrants. Now, from left to right, you got operations, data warehousing, self-service analytics, uh, new business models. 
And the cool thing is, is, you know, the best thing I could do is to figure out where clients are in that maturity curve so we could have an intelligent discussion. So I'd say, look, the left side is about spending money to save money. The right side is about spending money to make money. And, and so the left side is like in IT. So it's operations, it's automation. It, uh, it's, you know, I should say client server, uh, you know, normal database systems. Then you move to like data warehousing, you start bringing in ETL, you start thinking about data lakes, maybe you bring in Hadoop, you're probably thinking of the cloud. And most people are somewhere in there and then you make the transition to that self-service analytics where you go out of all IT, you bring in personas like application developer, data science, data analyst. Then it gets crazy because you gotta have governance because oh boy, am I gonna give everybody access? Who am I gonna give access? Who am I gonna pull access? Start thinking of technologies like Spark and others. And then you finally make the, the last transition to the fourth quadrant, which is new business models. And that's when everything's working. You start adding machine learning and data science, and then applications that are, are data driven. And in the value is a hockey stick that goes up. So what I would always do is I go into clients, I talk about this maturity curve and we can figure out where they are. Now, sometimes they'd have different projects in different areas, but makes for a great conversation. So I could get them from point A to point B to where they want to be and define modernization. So one, thank you for that. What has changed since you you outlined that? What does the new maturity curve look like? Well, you detailed it pretty well. I'll tell you. <laughs> so I started to build these maturity curves. I wrote a maturity curve in the Cloud Without Compromise book as well, right? Which talked about refactoring and modernization and, and how to go along it. It's because we're coming to clients and I wanted a way to kind of teach them stuff they don't know. And I wanted to go and figure out where they were, but more importantly, I wanted them to know where they were. Like my success with clients has always been getting the client to think differently about themselves. Because once they think differently about themselves, they'll think differently about IBM and me. And then we can create this kind of relationship where it's not about jamming products down your throat, it's about solving your problem. But one of the things, Al, why this kind of maturity curve really stuck with me, and I'm glad to hear that you use it, is because so many times IBMers will come in and it will be like, so what keeps you up at night? Well, tell us your problem. Don't spend 40 minutes with a client and they're just telling you what they already know, right? And this is all about teaching the customer and taking them to places. So this maturity curve and you hit it, like Mr. or Mrs. Uh, CIO, you wake up every day, you spend money to save money, you spend money to make money. Let's call that renovation and innovation, the left side and the right side. Right. And let's go and put your projects here and let's see where you're at. And now let's accelerate you down to the right side. And, and so that encompasses it. Did it change a lot? Look, at there's some minutia in there, but I think what I would say the biggest piece that I would paint across that is as you go from kind of cost reduction to modernization to insight driven to transformation, this is now done in the concept of data fabric driven. And I think that's what I would put on there. And it doesn't change the model, but it changes the way in which we accelerate the model because now we're very much focused on, especially on the cost reduction side, if you think about it, generating the metadata as it comes live and the connections, applying our business governance policies to the data, surfacing the data for discovery. Well, what will hold you back in self-service is if I can't service the data for discovery. So data fabric has a role to play in each one of these pillars from renovation to innovation. And that's the big change I'd say I'd add to that. So big change adding data fabric. 
Can you, uh, you may have hit it again, but could you hit it one more time in terms of the definition of data fabric? A lot of people here, I know, look at that as kind of a, you know, what, what do you want to call it? Just a cute word or a cute phrase. Yeah. It has meaning. Well, if you would define it for us. Yeah, listen, everyone has their own definition. I think Gartner has an official definition. Uh, I'm not going to even get into those details. I'm going to give you the analogy and kind of figure it out, right? It, uh, it's a connectivity tissue. And if you think about it, if I had a connectivity tissue like in my body of the nervous system, then I would be able to bring everything together. And well, I like to think of it like that because then I step back and I say, oh, okay, now what about people discovering data? So now I make it easy to surface automatically, AI is behind this, data that comes in. Remember, our data collection curve, Al, is like this, and our data understanding curve is like that, right? So all this area in between is the price of not knowing. So how do we accelerate and even know the data exists? Even at IBM today, I stumble upon data. I'm like, I didn't know that existed. So the data fabric kind of delivers that data. Now that data has to be delivered in a number of ways. Has to be delivered with business policy and metadata. See, that will help my lineage. And the problem is so many clients approach a governance strategy as least effort to comply, which is code for don't get us fined. Don't do anything more than just not get us fined. But when you take governance as an accelerant for an AI strategy, which is what we've built into our version of the data fabric, then now you have explainability, you have data lineage, you know where the data came from. And then in the same way as that's kind of the connectivity tissue of the data that's coming in, you can imagine a new data set comes in, we recognize in there is a credit card, we automatically apply a business policy rule to the credit card to mask it or obfuscate it, uh, to encrypt it, whatever the policy you've decided. So this is all automated, right? That helps us catch up on the understanding. So then the data comes pushed out. Then coming back in is how do I consume that data? So you think about things like auto SQL, right? Where I don't care where the data resides, you will take this one API and you will go and get that data. And so I call it this, if you imagine also maybe at your house, if you took a blanket and you threw it over everything on your bed, everything on the bed would be covered by this blanket. That's exactly how I like to think about it. So it brings explainability, governance, connectivity, and curiosity and observability in the sense of I can observe these new data artifacts to the entire organization. That's how I like to kind of view it. Awesome. Thank you, man. Hey, so as I make the transition to leadership and, talk, and kind yeah. of here's the way I'll do it. The, the maturity curve, as you talked about it, I mean, being able to communicate this to clients and being able to figure out where they are, where they want to go, critical. Uh, one of the books I know that you're a fan of is called The Challenger Cell. I love, he's got it up, doesn't he? It's, it's a Sorry, great, <laughs> you guys haven't read this book. It's fantastic. I've read it twice. Give us some insight. Why is it a favorite book? And how does it, you know, I mean, it, it ties in the maturity curve for me in terms of being able to explain and being that challenger seller. Could you say a few words on the, why that book is so important to you? Yeah, it changed my life. Honestly, it changed my life. And I will tell you, if you want to be effective in front of clients, you read that book, you read it more than twice. Like, for a guy who writes a lot of books, I don't read a lot of books. I've probably read that book eight times. I still re-listen to parts of it all the time. The book really tells you about how to make impact with clients, right? At the end of the day. What I found fascinating, Al, is it profiles five different sellers. And if you're connected with sales, I don't know where each of the listeners are coming from in their groups. You'll literally look around and see those people. You know, I know I used to be the lone wolf. I know who the relationship builder is. I know who the pleaser is. I know who the hard worker is. 
And then this challenger is like that next level. And what it does is it presents your point of view to a client. So to go back to what you talked about, I was with a client the other day and the client team was on and we spent 30 minutes just letting the customer tell us about their problems. Now that sounds like the right thing to do, doesn't it? Well, we have to listen. We listen more than talk. But I kind of like, just give me these times. I want to give you my point of view. Here's my point of view because I've dealt with thousands of clients over my history. You know, I've written these books. Let me tell you what I'm seeing at every client. And if I miss something, let me know. The end of the result of my 15 minutes was the CIO saying, you know, this is right on topic and you made me think about things I never thought of before. That is the challenger sale. And sometimes you'll create tension in the client, but it is coming with a point of view, not trying to figure out what the customer needs per se. It works into it, but as a secondary motion, it is coming with expertise, depth, and eminence. And that's why that book is so important to me. And I think that book is what made me decide to double down on skills, on industry knowledge, and keep learning. It goes hand in hand with learning every day. Teach, tailor, and take control. Yeah, that's it. See? And I'll read it a third time. I'll, I'll, it's on the yeah, list. You right. go. I, I get it on audiobook as well, so I will throw it on occasionally just yeah. to, to listen while I'm, I'm making my drive. All right, so easy one for you. What makes a great leader? And, and by the way, everybody's a leader. Everybody's yeah. a leader. What makes a great leader? You know, in my opinion, what makes a great leader, and it, this changes depending on the role you have, clearly. I think empathy. Like, I really think empathy. To me, someone comes to work, their intention isn't come to work all day and do a bad job. Right? Nobody wants to do a bad job. That doesn't mean that we don't have low performers and I have to manage them and sometimes out of the business and that. But I, if you have to choose one trait, I would say it's empathy. And then the second trait I would say is, you know, what's the point in hiring people and treating them like pawns in a chess game? So listen, and I won't, this is a rule I have. I tell everybody this. I don't care whether you're an intern, band six who gets in my face. There's one gal who got in my face the other day. I loved it. Uh, or you're another executive. Here's what I think should always happen is I promise anyone who works for me, I will always hear your opinion. Now, I will either A, stick with the opinion that I formed, but I'll know the counter arguments to it. B, realize I was wrong and we'll go with your opinion, happens. Or C, some hybrid. But whatever it is, you'll be heard. Because I found when, and I see this sometimes in IBM, I see it at clients. When leaders stop listening, people stop talking. And that's how we get smarter is having this diverse group around us of people and opinions. That's what makes great leadership. So I always find it funny when I see this anti-bullying training for leaders. And I'm like, if you were a bully before, going and getting training not to bully people isn't going to make you a great leader. Well, maybe make you a bit better. But the folks who don't naturally bully, and I guess I'll finish that clip by just telling you this. Culture and true leadership is what happens when no one's watching. Uh, and hey, this is not because you invited me here, Al. I've actually greatly admired your leadership. People talk about it all the time. And so if I think of what makes a great leader, I look at the things that you bring to the table. So, uh, yeah, well, it's got nothing to do with being on the show or trying to get the jacket on a fifth time. So <laughs> it's a continuous improvement. Hey, yeah. uh, you know, the funny thing that you say with empathy is, uh, look, Microsoft's a worthy competitor. Have you read Satya Nadella's book? Hit no, I have not. No, it's I have pretty, not. It, it, I have to admit, 
pretty great. Um, he talks about engagement being the definition of a culture, empathy, and purpose. And he yeah. really focuses on, on empathy. And he had a funny story in the book where he talks when he first got hired at Microsoft. He had an interview with a gentleman by the name of Richard Tate. I don't know if anybody knows that name, but he was the gentleman that created Cranium Games ultimately, but that was before that time. So he walks in and he asked him one question. So Satya walks in and he said, I was nervous, you know, was my, I was trying to get hired at Microsoft. This guy says, imagine a baby laying in the street. The baby is crying. What do you do? And he said, he goes, it was really nervous. He said, my first, Satya says, my first response was, I, I called 911. He said, Richard just kind of drooped his shoulders and said, Satya, you, you pick up the baby, man. Hey, do you not have any empathy? You pick up the baby. Yeah, yeah, good story. And he walked out of the room. He said, I thought I was done. <laughs> I never, I don't know if he ever talked to him again, you know, in that interview process, but he ended up getting the job, of course. But he, he said that always stuck with me, always stuck with me. And I am push, I push empathy across the organization. Look, for me, it's also uh, influence. I, I read John Maxwell as well. Leadership equals influence. It was interesting. I was talking with Rosamilia. Tom Rosamilia was talking about uh, how he defined leadership, and he said it was, you know, how many followers or do people follow you because they want to versus whether they have to. And then I was thinking about that, and I guess that's influence too. So I guess I would agree, I agree with that. All You're right. The best leader, the best leader. I think you'd follow out of curiosity alone. Those are the best leaders, right? They're they make you curious. Uh, what they bring to the table and the vibe, right? But it is all about vibe and energy. How much time do we spend at work in our lives? I want to be inspired when I come to work. That doesn't mean oh, I don't have bad days or a leader I admire gets in my face. Uh, yeah, I actually work for a terrific leader, Sebastian Gross. And sometimes he's got to kind of correct me and take me to the right area. But that guy comes to the table with no ego ever trying to make you better. And you're like, oh, I'm curious to know this guy a little more. So uh, in your own personal careers, I've always said this, and this is just my opinion. So, but choose the boss, not the job every single time and choose a great leader and you will be very, very happy and probably more successful. So. That's good advice. I always, you know, when I'm looking at, uh, you know, look, I think clarity of vision, the right leaders, rewards and recognition, those are all very important. But if you make it really tactically easy to assess whether things are working or not, I always ask myself, who gives me energy? Who would I yeah. take with me if I walked out of here? And probably the, the most important one, the third one is who demonstrates they can change their mind? Yeah, 100%. That goes back to what I said about listening and those types of things. And I make that commitment. I, I let them know, it doesn't mean you're going to get your way, but I will make that commitment. And I've changed my mind many, many, many times. But I liked what you said there. Look at you might give me a promotion or a year end bonus and an extra 10%. Yes, I, especially with a horse. <laughs> My daughter rides a horse. I'd like some more money. But, you know, it's the every day that keeps you going. In your personal lives, in cultural transformation, the world way overlooks the big leap versus the little tiny things every day. If you understand compounding numbers, then you get that my formula is right. Give me energy every single day. You'll carry me a lifetime. Look, I mean, so that also brings up, I mean, you've got to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you and be be very vulnerable and okay with that. It's like, who who invented the light bulb? Uh, was it Humphrey Davy and Joseph Swan? But I think most people tell you, hey, it's Thomas Edison. 
and look, nothing against Thomas Edison, but he made a commercial. He had 30 people working on it at the time. He had 30 people. Yeah. Uh, but it, we always picture him in a lab coat doing it all by himself. Doesn't happen. And no different like Neil Armstrong. Uh, there was 500,000 people in NASA at the time trying to get, get somebody on the moon. Anyway, a um, few more questions for you. I know we're running up against time. We mentioned Challenger Cell. A couple other books you highly recommend? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I got them right here. All right, let me pull them down. I didn't even plan this, but we talked about the Challenger sale. So that was that one. Okay. I posted on this on LinkedIn about a week ago. There's a follow-up to that book called The Challenger Customer. What this book is about is Challenger Sales about how to lead to. This is about how customers buy, right? They buy in uh, consensus buying. So going and tailoring a message to an individual CIO, a CTO, a CMO, a CFO is actually the wrong way to sell. It is what is the binding link. If you run a team, energy bus, slam dunk book, really quick read, get on the energy bus. If you do customer cares, effortless experience, same people who do the challenger. So great book there. And finally, uh, grit. Grit is what defined me because I didn't have all the talent of the world when I was uh, an athlete. I was a national athlete. I didn't have all the talent in the world, but I had grit. Came to IBM without a computer course, didn't have the talent in the world, but I have grit. This book, yeah, I made my daughter read it. I mean, that's a key to success in your life is just work hard. Always, always 99% of the time outdoes, right? Every work hard and resilience outdoes natural ability. I see it all the time here at IBM. So those are the books. Very good. Very, by the way, I've made, made my whole family and my best friend's family read the, the energy bus. And so now, like if we're, we're talking about a boyfriend or something, they'll say, no, he's off my bus. He's off my bus. Yeah. That's the, <laughs> so that's the energy. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Hey, thanks for that. Hey, you got to give me some Paulisms before we leave. Uh, what I mean by Paulisms, like I, I, I went back to our older uh, uh, podcasts and like, I'll give you a couple to kind of get you rolling. Cause once you get rolling, I know we'll, we'll be here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Always offer to, to bet on yourself. Um, always be a newbie. Vulnerability leads to confidence. Being humble doesn't mean you can't be decisive. You are who you hang out with. I, I really like that one. Getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And, you know, one time you had defined leadership to me, which I love and I still use today, is to get the butterflies to fly in formation. Yeah. Come on, come on. Extrapolate on one of those for me. Come on, man. Butterflies and flying formation. I'll give you that, and then I'll give you one one new ism. I, I actually sound pretty profound when you read that back to me. <laughs> right. uh, That's weird to do. Yeah, the butterflies to fly information is someone came up to me, and I do these keynotes sometimes. Sometimes audiences of ten thousand people, and they're like, "Well, I need to learn how to public speak. I'm so nervous." And I'm like, "Why do you think I'm not nervous?" Ow! Hey, like, here's a secret, everyone. Before I go on stage, I am sitting there going. Why am I doing this? Why do I put myself in this position? I don't deserve to be here. I'm the biggest self-doubter on the inside. Those are the butterflies. But then I channel them to fly in formation. So I know I've done my preparation. I know I've done my research. I know I have grit. That's why I feel like I can deliver that. So when you go on stage, I'm nervous as hell. Uh, but I got the butterflies information. Um, so I guess I guess we're almost out of time. So the final ism, just because I did it the other day on the wrong side of it, but 
There are some days at work where you think you're the smartest person in the world. Like you have done something amazing. You're in the top 1% of IBM, if not the smartest person at IBM for that day. On those days, just remember, you're never as smart as you think you are or feel. But on the other side of that, because I had this two weeks ago, you may have the dumbest day. I'm surprised I'm not going to get fired. Or why would I have said that? Why did I let the call go like that? Why did I word it that way? There are days where I feel really dumb and it, and I beat myself up for it. But I got to remember, I'm not as dumb as I feel that day either. So if you keep those two things in balance, I think there's a new one. On your smartest day, you're never smart as you think you are. And as your dumbest day, you're never dumb as you think you are either. That's great. Hey, can I ask you one more question before we break? Yeah. It's in four parts. <laughs> but as well. Oh. No, no. Um, I think it's a good one to bookend with. Um, and recently, I had a general manager ask me this question. Uh, and I've asked some of my team this question. So I'm going to ask it of you. Um, okay, so, so follow me. Why are you here? Why are you at IBM? Number one. What are you going to stop tolerating? Number three is how do you put customers first? And number four is how are you going to make your job better than when you found it? Okay. So why are you here? Uh, why, uh, why am I here? I get the opportunity to grow myself on the daily here. Remember, I came from zero technical background. Uh, I get my chance to grow here personally, professionally. And I've actually been able to influence outcomes for people in society, the work I did at Toronto Sick Kids Hospital and stuff like that, and, and influence the outcome of people. So if I hire someone or I upskill someone and they make their numbers, they're feeding their family. You've got three daughters, you know, or send them to college. So that, I get a really big, that's probably, someone asked me one day, what is the biggest thing that you like? Is it being a VP? I'm like, no, you know what it was? It's looking at these 10 careers of people who work for me. And I know I lifted them higher than they would have gotten if they got with just someone regular. So that's that. What will I stop tolerating? Boy, for some reason, because I'm not on the road with clients and face-to-face -face as much, my calendar is open, so people block it. But now people are, don't even do search for free time. They just go and block it. I got people overloading this call, as you remember, right? Uh, <laughs> so I don't tolerate that. I started calling people out on that. Uh, what was the third question? third question is how do you put customers first how do you make sure customers yeah. Always yeah i do my research and i bring a point of view i bring eminence and expertise that's why i write every book i write is because i want to put the customer first so i get smarter every day that's it that's how you do that uh and the second is how will i leave this job or yeah, how will you leave the job that or any job but better than the way you found it a mission a strategy empathy and the right people who understand it and I think that's it. You get enough people buying into something, they could bring it forward. You could, you know, promote me, fire me, move me to a different job, but that ethos will move forward. So it's programmable ethos. I, I totally agree with you. And just to end on that one, um, they always say like, you're looking for people that are trustworthy. You're looking for management that you can trust. And then the organization has to drive alignment. And if you're able to get those, then you, you should be able to execute um in accelerated fashion dude thank you so much this is a lot of fun i greatly appreciate it you are a champion of champions 
look, this has been great. I'm sure I'll get a lot of good feedback from it. I can't thank you enough. I'll keep you on. We'll get you the, the jacket. The jacket will be in the mail here shortly. <laughs> but I appreciate it. All right. You, you, All right, everyone. Be well. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, Let's go over and